This is the new normal. Well, good morning. Good morning again. Great to see you. And I'm excited to have got a special guest coming to read the Bible for me this morning. Um, before we get to the Bible reading, um, Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate um, bone from marrow and can judge the thoughts of our heart. Well, so, and some Bible verses are like that. Other Bible verses are more like a wind in our sails that encourages us and propels us forward. Uh, while other Bible verses altogether are like um, x-ray mirrors that r- shine back to us the attitudes of our heart and uh, make clear to us things that we'd rather not be honest about and tell people about. Today's Bible verse, you'll be pleased to know, is like the last one. It is like that. It is a series of verses that is no doubt going to challenge us, but a series of verses that a few months ago, maybe 18 months ago, wouldn't have posed much of a threat to us at all. Today, we're going to be talking about Christian attitudes towards government. Hey! I knew you'd be excited about that. Christian attitudes towards government and how we're to live as Christians um, under the state. Before we do that, though, I want to put what we're going to hear in the context um, of our identity because I think any behavior in the Christian life flows primarily, first of all, from this position of who we are. So who we are affects how we are to be. And who we are is really shaped by whose we are. And when you become a Christian, you become Christ's. That's whose you are. And when you become a Christian, you may not have known it at the time, but it is an act of revolt and rebellion against the powers of the world. Romans 10 verse 9, we read a few weeks ago now, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now in Paul's day, everyone knew who wrote the letter to the Romans. In Paul's day, everyone knew who the Lord was. It was Caesar. It was written, Caesar's face was on every coin in the empire and his city was stationed at every city in the known world. Caesar was Lord. It's what they announced everywhere they went. And so when a person took the phrase, Jesus is Lord, on their lips, they did so knowing that it would likely land them in a lot of trouble. Authoritarian states throughout history have understood this as well, such that Christians throughout history have often been persecuted and marginalized for their refusal to proclaim Caesar as Lord and their insistence that Jesus is Lord. A friend of mine from Iran who was imprisoned for several years in his 20s, he said that the charge that they leveled against him and the reason he was in prison was because they said he was a threat to national security because of his faith, which he laughs about as he tells me because if you've met him, he's really not a threat to national security. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Hussein Rouhani, Hassan Rouhani is not Lord. Boris Johnson is not Lord. You see, saying Jesus is Lord is not a spiritual pleasantry. It is inflammatory. Two weeks ago in Romans 12, we looked at the verse that says, Do not be conformed to the pattern or the schemes, the schematics of this world, but instead be transformed. The Christian path is a path of transformation in opposition to the pattern of the world. 
In the 16th century, a German monk named Martin Luther, he said that a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Subject to none, free, allied only to Jesus. And in 177 AD, a prisoner from Vienne in France, he simply replied with the words, I am Christian, to every question put to him by the authorities and his interrogators. Rather than tell him his name or where he had been born or whether he was a slave or free, instead he repeatedly insisted that he had no status except that of a follower of Christ. I am Christian. I am Christian. I am Christian. Jesus is Lord. So that is our identity. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you've taken those three words on your lips and you've said Christ is Lord, that is your identity, your allegiance belongs to him and then that will flow on to how we're going to live as we consider the question how should we live to how does that affect our behavior towards the government to help us with that since it's father's day i used a little bit of fatherly manipulation and my son i'm very pleased to say is going to come and read my eldest son i should say I have three sons you're also my sons just to be clear um <laughs> riley is going to be uh, reading for us so come on up buddy you can pop that there. Pop that there. Oh, do you want me to hold that? Are you okay? There we go. That should be live. Hmm? Yeah. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who will do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold, rulers, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear or of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do, rulers do not bear their sword for no reason. They are God's servant agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not, because, not, not only because of the possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give them their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves and others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is God's word. Thanks, buddy. Well done, Riley. That's it, is it? They're off now. Don't want to listen to Dad any more than I have to, let's be honest. Martin Luther said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all who is subject to none. But then he finished that sentence by saying, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So we are lords of all, subject to none. 
but servants of all, subject to all. The Apostle Peter agrees in 1 Peter 2, be subject to the Lord, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God. And the verses that we heard read to us, Paul is, is saying, I think, several things. Government is good, submission is good, and love is better. He also says taxes are good, but I know you're convinced of that already, so we won't go there. Government is good, submission is good, but love is better. First of all, government is good. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Government is good. Authority, civil leadership, is instituted by God and derives its authority from God. Jesus is Lord, we say. We recognize there is authority at the heart of the Christian faith. That Jesus is Lord of all. He's the one from whom all authority stems. God is a God of authority. God is not an anarchist. Government, rule, order, hierarchy, these things are gifts from God. Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And do what is good and you will receive the ruler's approval. And verse 4, he is God's servant for your good, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Government is good. Now, we will ask the question, the obvious question, what about Hitler, in a few moments. But don't let that very extreme example rob you of the key point that Paul's making in these verses, that government is good. And 2005, or, or actually there's been lots of experiences in recent years of what happens to a people, a society, when law and order breaks down. But one particularly graphic one was from 2005 in uh, New Orleans after, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina uh, that left you know, hundreds killed and thousands homeless. One newspaper report wrote this. New Orleans in 2005 descended into anarchy as corpses lay abandoned in the streets. Fights and fires broke out and storm survivors battled for seats on the buses that would carry them away from the chaos. We are like pure animals out here, the Reverend Isaac Clark said outside the New Orleans Convention Center where he and other evacuees had been waiting for buses for days amid the filth of the dead. Police Chief, Chief Eddie Compass said he sent 88 officers to quell the situation at the building, but they were quickly driven back by an angry mob. We have individuals who are getting raped. We have individuals who are getting beaten, Compass said. A military helicopter tried to land at the convention center several times to drop off food and water, but the rushing crowd forced the choppers to back off. At least seven bodies were scattered outside the convention center, a makeshift staging area for those rescued from rooftops, attics, and highways. The sidewalks were packed with people without food, water, or medical care, and with no sign of law enforcement. The first thing we can say is that government is a good thing for our good. Authority is good. It comes from God. The second thing we say, can say from these verses is that submission is good. As citizens in the world, as those who have our primary allegiance to Christ, we are also told to submit or to be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 2, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed 
and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 5, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, as a rule, Christians are called to do what the government says. If they make a law, we keep it. If they outlaw something, we avoid it. They are servants of God, and so we submit to them as a rule. Just going to let that sink in. There is, it seems to me, a direct link between submission to authority and submission to God. Jesus is Lord. So the heart of the Christian faith is a statement of submission. To become a Christian requires submission. Requires you to say, Jesus is the king. He's the one who's in charge. And my observation from talking to many people who aren't Christians, that lies at the heart of why people aren't Christians. The unwillingness in every human heart to submit to submit to God, to submit to Christ. It's hard. Those of us who've said that know that it's hard. We know that it's at the core of our faith. Jesus is Lord, Paul says, so therefore, submit to your government. And this past year, as I said, like 18 months ago, this, these verses wouldn't necessarily have stuck in my mouth or been hard to proclaim. We're all, we all would have said, yeah, the Bible, Christians would have said, the Bible is God's word, it's for our good, happy to do what it says. And then the pandemic hit, and we found rules being made that incurred on our freedom, and people found it challenging. In fact, this, this week, preparing the sermon's been hard. I sat down to prepare the sermon, got the Bible out and the commentaries, and thinking of what to say, and found myself thinking, I can't preach this yet. <laughs> I need to repent because there's a lot in my heart that isn't as submitted to the government as it should be. It has been hard to navigate the rules and the changing statements that often didn't seem fair or right to me or reasonable to me at various points. There's plenty of contradictions, as we know, in the government guidelines. So I have to wear a mask when talking to you in here, but if I'm over there and I have a drink in my hand, I can take the mask off as one example. But I don't think that just saying the rules are complicated and change all the time is enough. They are complicated. They do change all the time. But nevertheless, we must submit to the government. Now that raises the question, the obvious question, what about evil governments? And that question is as old as the text. Um, Douglas Moo, a Bible commentator, writes about this verse. He says, It is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of interpreting Romans 13 to 1 to 7 is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. He says, I've read almost everything there is to read out there on on the book of Romans, and every commentator, bar none, seems to do what they can to avoid having to obey these texts. And with these verses, there are two obvious extremes that we can fall into, I think. On the one hand, we could conclude that the Apostle Paul is speaking in absolute terms. That everything the government tells you to do, no matter how evil it is, must be be obeyed. So if you were living in Nazi Germany or in communist Russia, you must 
spy on your neighbours, um, hand in Jews to local authorities. But that can't be right. Because the Apostle Paul himself doesn't obey every rule that the government gives to him. He avoids the authorities when they're trying to capture him at times. He carries on preaching the good news about Jesus, even when he's told not to. And in at least one place in the Bible, the writer commends Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus who lied to the authorities and deliberately disobeyed them in the way they behaved. And so what we have to do is we have to balance and hold, in the one hand, Romans 13, where it says that the government is God's servant for your good, with Revelation 13, which pictures governing authorities being a beast that comes out of the water to devour people. You have to hold both of them. And Peter and John, in the book of Acts, he says, after being imprisoned and being commanded not to tell people about the gospel, they said we must obey God rather than men. So that's what, at one extreme, is that, however, we must, that Paul is speaking absolutely, we must obey everything that the government says. At the other extreme, however, we could conclude that the Apostle Paul is speaking naively. He didn't know about Hitler and he doesn't know about how totalitarian governments abuse power and oppress their citizens and therefore need to be resisted. It's just naive. But that also is nonsense because Paul knew the Old Testament. He knew about Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and King Xerxes. And we must not forget that he's writing to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, with all of its abuses of power and corruption and evil. And yet still, he talks to them in Rome about the importance of submission. I think the key to notice here is that the Apostle Paul doesn't insist on absolute obedience to the state, but instead he says, be subject to or submit to. He advocates or argues for a posture of submission and subjection. That in practice, this means obeying the government unless... The government violates God's word or tells us to do things that are evil. And even then, we must continue to honor the government and respect them where we are able because it's been instituted by God. Now, um, several months ago, we, we did an evening where we read through Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. Martin Luther King was a civil rights activist, as you know, in America. And he was imprisoned for some protesting that took place. And some local clergymen wrote, wrote against Martin Luther and um, the people who were with him for the way that they were behaving. So Luther King, in prison, wrote in the columns of a newspaper that he had what became published later as a letter from Birmingham Jail, which is beautiful. And in it, he confronts this question. How can you advocate obeying some laws and not other laws? And he says... He says, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and not obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Any law that uplifts human personhood is just, and any law that degrades human personhood is unjust. Nevertheless, submission is good. So if government is good, submission is good, taxes is good, but we won't talk about that. And thirdly, but love is better. 
Government is good, submission is good, but love is better. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Submission is good, love is better. And love lives in the tension between blind obedience on the one hand and willful defiance on the other. It was love that motivated the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 to save babies from the genocide. It was love that motivated people to disobey the Nazis and hide Jews in their home. Love looks to honour the government and submit to its decrees, but not withdraw from people in time of need. Love makes support bubbles sometimes and garden visits and at times in the interest of another's well-being love is willing to sail close to the wind of civil disobedience for the sake of love love means not acting or voting or submitting with self-interest in mind at all but looking to prefer the needs of others looking to protect the vulnerable and the marginalised, and vote accordingly. And that's where the statement, Jesus is Lord, I think, starts to cut deepest for us in the modern West. Because we don't, we don't walk around and we're not made to say, Boris Johnson is Lord, or the Tories are Lord. We're not. This is a, a democracy. We voted them into power. So if we don't want them as our Lord, we can vote them out the next chance we get. Instead, where the rubber really hits the road for people in the individualistic West, such as we are, is the statement, not Boris is Lord, but I am Lord, or my desire is Lord, my will, my freedom is Lord. Christians are those who have died to self and have said, my will is not Lord, my desires are not Lord, my personal preferences are not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, therefore, I will act in love, not in self-interest, and often I will need to die to self. We are called to honour the government and not grumble and not whine all the time about everything that they're doing. I'm speaking to myself. Um, in fact, all of this is really just aimed at me. I appreciate you listening in. <laughs> Romans 12 last week, Polly commented that we're to love beyond our personality type. If you are someone who identifies as an introvert, or as an extrovert, you're to love beyond your personality preference, she said. You're to love in view of God's mercy. You're to love in view of Christ as Lord. And in fact, we have to be careful because, I mean, Carl Jung, who invented those terms, introvert and extrovert, he said that the goal isn't to identify as introvert or extrovert. The goal is to be a mature human being who is both introvert and extrovert when it is required. Love seeks 
to serve and to die to our own interest. Love means that we don't just plow on regardless, regardless of what the government say, regardless of how others feel, just do what I want. It doesn't suit me to submit to the government, so I won't. But it also doesn't mean withdrawing and retreating from the world whenever the government tells us to lock down. Love meant sometimes participating in Zoom church or settling for online church. It was for love's sake that churches were closed at the start of the pandemic. It was for love's sake that in November we closed our services again. Not for fear, but for love of others. Love sometimes means doing Bible studies and prayer meetings in the snow. And since Jesus is Lord, and Jesus was both devoted to God and committed to the needs of others, preferring them above himself, such that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so we are called to be. Love means, if the government tell you to, probably, it means getting the vaccine. Not because you want it, or because you need it, to obey the government, so be subject to them, and to love others and serve the vulnerable. I think that's what it means in a society like this. But the, ultimately, the statement, Jesus is Lord, is a statement of extremism. Christians are called to be extremists, not moderates who plow the middle line between everything. And this is where I want to come back to and end on what Martin Luther King wrote, because I just think it's beautiful. He was, yeah, so Martin Luther King, writing, writing from a letter from Birmingham jail, he, he said this, he said, though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to those who hate you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And so the question is, not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Government is good. Submission is good. Love is better Jesus says, that's how the world will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. So submit to the government. Pay your taxes. But love one another, even at the expense of your own freedoms and your own choices and your own desires. Jesus is Lord. That's whose we are, and that is therefore also how we are to be in the world. Let's pray.